Let's, um, let's read God's word together and then we'll, sit, we'll sing the, the, the hymn that we skipped there. I think that's probably the best order to, to do things in. Going to read God's word. We're reading from Isaiah and we're picking up Isaiah from the end of chapter 52. These words are some of the most important words, certainly in the book of Isaiah, but perhaps in the whole of the Old Testament. And the words that you will recognize, I'm sure, as we read them. Isaiah writes, See, my servant will act... Oh. 52 verse... Ah, no, it's okay. I've just got the the verse after. It's fine. My fault. Okay, 12. But you will not leave in haste or go in flight, for the Lord will go before you. The Lord God of Israel will be your rear guard. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. For who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot. And like a root out of dry ground. He he had no beauty or, or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we consider him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. And with the rich in his death, 
though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Amen. And thanks be to God for his word. We're then going to read from the book of Acts and Acts chapter 8, reading at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go down to the road, the desert road, that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out. And on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the candidate, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The Holy Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come and sit with him. This is the passage of the scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him all the good news about Jesus. Father, as we come to meditate on your word and the story of your son Jesus Christ, we pray that by your Holy Spirit this would be real to us and you'd touch our lives. Amen. You know, one of the the, the reasons that we often read one passage from the Old Testament and one passage from the New Testament is so that when we're looking at the Old Testament, we can begin to see and trace the lines that point to God's big picture that's worked out right across the Bible to bring Jesus and to bring salvation to the world. But there are some passages, and this is one of them, where the preacher almost doesn't need to do that, does he? As you read that passage, even if it was for the first time, there, there's, there's little tingles going down like a lamb before it's, it, 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 it's shearers is silent and you've got that image of, of Jesus before Pontius Pilate saying not a word. That one who, is, who is, comes and is despised and rejected and takes on our, our sin. And as we, as we hear that, we, we, we're listening to the New Testament, aren't we? It's, it, it's almost jumping out the page at us if we know the story of Jesus. It's just shining through. It's not much wonder that Isaiah is sometimes described as being the fifth of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John and Isaiah. As it tells the story of, of, of Jesus and his passion. But it's worth remembering that Isaiah also comes out of a, a context. And that's why we've been going not just to this passage, but we've been going through in these weeks the whole book of Isaiah. And just to recap briefly. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah, summed up in one word, sorry, in, 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 in one minute. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah, written about 700 BC, at a time when God's people have fallen into sin, when God's people have fallen into injustice, when God's people have fallen into idolatry, um, Isaiah's word comes. And Isaiah's word is a word of judgment, a word of God's displeasure, but it's also a word of hope. God is going to rescue you. God is going to deliver you from these Assyrians that are stalking you. 
And at the end of the first of those chapters, we get this, this vision of a, of a chap called Hezekiah who will become king and he will be a better king and he will lift the people and they will be delivered at that point from Assyria. But in those chapters, we also saw little hints that God was actually about something bigger than that. A new branch was going to come from the stump of Jesse. Remember that? That log that we had at the front of the church. And as that happens, God is going to send a hope for the whole world. And that message of hope, Isaiah is told to put into a scroll and to seal it up for the future. Then we come to chapter 40 and we have skipped forward something like 100 to 150 years. And the situation is very different. The Assyrians have gone away, but they've been replaced by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians are even worse. And in fact, what's happened is the people have persisted in their sin and their injustice and their idolatry until God has allowed the Babylonians to come in and destroy Jerusalem and carry the people off to exile. And it's that point that the word comes again from Isaiah. Now some people think this is Isaiah writing 150 years before, looking into the future and giving a word of hope. Other people think, and I think it's more likely that that folk in a new generation have opened that old school of Isaiah and are looking to see what this message is for now. And again, there's hope. God is going to save his people, forgive them, and he's going to allow them to come back from Babylon, back from exile and come home. But there's a more important hope, a bigger hope. And that word that comes of comfort in chapter 40 begins to say how God is going to not just bring the people home in that particular day and age, but is going to send someone who is going to deliver all people from all their brokenness until there is a new heaven and a new earth. And those are the passages of hope that we're going to look at as we go into Advent. You see, in the Old Testament, there's this constant pattern. People fall away from God, and God sends a saviour. Now, it depends which part of the Old Testament you're reading who that saviour is. I mean, Moses is perhaps the one that you think of most obviously. They've fallen away, they're in slavery, God sends Moses, and Moses brings them to the promised land. But you find this again, and again, and again. Gideon comes when they're oppressed by the Midianites. And they've fallen into sin and he leads them back. Leads them back till they, they're, they're looking out for God and, and they're delivered. And you can find that right through the book of Judges. And then you find David delivering them from the Philistines. And you find more and more kings right up to Hezekiah. But the promise of the book of Isaiah is that all those saviors in all those different historical periods are pointing to this figure of the servant of the Lord that will be sent to deal with the underlying problem itself, the problem of sin and rebelliousness, so that every human age, in every generation, in every nation, not just in Israel, might know what God has done, receive the forgiveness of God, and experience this promise of a new heaven and a new earth, of a renewed creation itself. And that's the background to what we're reading now. Now this servant of the Lord figure in Isaiah leaves people scratching their heads. Who is this? 
Is this a figure that represents Israel, who is supposed to serve the Lord by proclaiming this good news to all the nations? Is this a figure that represents the prophet Isaiah? People were asking that question right through the whole of the Old Testament. That's the same question Philip's. The Ethiopians asking that day in that chariot, as he's reading the same scroll we are, and going, what is this all about? What is this all about? But we understand it because we have seen the story fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, in the suffering on the cross, and in the humiliation, and then in the resurrection. Now, the whole of this particular servant song goes right through chapter 53, but I just want to look at perhaps the first three verses of it this morning. It starts in 52, verse 13. Now, I've got lots of words on there, and I I struggled with this because Colin's going to tell me off. I'm only supposed to have three lines on so you can all read it. But sometimes the scripture, you, you need more than that because you sort of need to see the context of the poem. So I'm sorry if you can't read that, and this is why I'm inviting you, if you, if you can, to bring a, a Bible with you, because then you can, you can look at it yourself. But the, here's what it, it does. It, it presents us with this figure. My servant will act wisely and be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. This is a wise guy. A powerful king that's coming. And he's going to get it done. He's going to be successful. But then he goes on to say, Sorry. But we were appalled at him. His appearance was disfigured so that he didn't even look human. And the image here is of seeing something that is so pathetic, it's sickening. Have you ever had that experience of looking at something? Just go, oh! Now, to understand this, you need to have this thought in mind. If you go to any place of, of classical antiquity where you look at Greek or Roman statues, you go to a museum and if you're in Italy or, or in Greece, or, or you'll, well, half of them have been nicked and put in the British Museum, haven't they? But you'll see one thing as you look at ancient statues. Now, I had to pick very carefully which statues here because some of them are a bit explicit, show you things that I shouldn't show in church. But here's ones that are roughly safe. But one of the things you'll look at is you look at as these, these pictures of emperors or heroes from Greece, Greece or Rome or, or, or conquering generals. They all are really strong physiques. You know, they've got the six pack. They've got the, the wonderful athletic body. You never see sort of an aging guy with a, with, a, with a beer belly that's actually quite a good leader. You never see that at all. They're always big striking, you know, really, they've got it. Woman, you can just swoon as you look at these this morning. But there you have it. And that's because in the ancient world, visual imagery was really important. And, and, and it was very, very clear. Beauty was strength. And beauty was virtue. Moral perfection. If you were blessed by the gods because you were doing all the right things, you were going to have the perfect physique. And that was how you were going to be presented. I wonder that the Emperor Augustus might actually have had a pot belly. You know, nobody was going to see him in the far parts of the empire. All they were going to see was these strutting colossuses. And wow, look at them. But that was how everything was presented. And the reverse becomes true as well. That means if you are poor, badly dressed, sickly, 
and weak, it is very obvious that the gods don't like you. And you've obviously lived an immoral life, a weak life. And that's what's in people's heads as they come to this. And that's one of the reasons why the cross is such a problem as as the early Christians spread their message in this Greco-Roman world because they're trying to sell a hero, a saviour, a deliverer, one that you give your allegiance to that looks utterly pathetic and destroyed. See, Christianity doesn't just say, oh, by the way, Jesus had some tough times and went through this trial of the cross. But look, here's the empty tomb and the hero and the guy that went on to do all these wonderful things, does it? Actually, it puts right in the centre, not a symbol of an empty tomb, but the symbol of suffering. And not just of suffering, but the symbol of somebody who was destroyed by the system. Somebody who couldn't stand up for himself or didn't stand up for himself. Somebody who was crushed by Roman power. And this is the revolutionary idea at the heart of the gospel. Jesus is the one who suffered. It's such a strange idea that we find that It says at the end of this passage, kings will shut their mouths because of him. That means the strong and the wise of the world will just look at this and go, oh, gulp. This is the opposite of everything that we were taught to believe. Now, just before we think this is all about the ancient world and what's this got to do with our world, let me just point out a few things. What did Darwin teach? The survival of of the fittest. One of the problems with any type of social Darwinism is that it actually says it's the strong that deserve to survive. The strongest societies, the best economies, the most industrious people, the folk that have got the might will get to the top and that's the way the world will progress. But let's look at it another way. Because This ancient idea of of God's blessing being about strength gets into our own minds as well. People find a faith, start coming to church. They're brought up in it, they believe it. And then what happens, and this story you'll know because you'll know it from many of your friends, if not yourself, they experience suffering. Things start going wrong in life. There's grief, there's pain, there's loss of a job, whatever it is, and the person gives up. The person begins to question God's love, don't they? The question be- person begins to reject the idea that God loves them. Why is that? Because somehow there is still this ancient notion within us that if God loves us, if we're blessed by the gods, then strong, healthy, wealthy, wise. And if we're experiencing suffering and oppression and everything going wrong, then utterly there cannot be a God who loves us. And the gospel comes and says, look at Jesus, the figure on the cross, the one who did no wrong. And reconfigure your whole expectations of reality. You know, this is also what the church is called to proclaim. It's very tempting for us sometimes to say to people, you know, come to church and things will get better for you. We'll give you free pizza and free soup and, you know, lots of good things. 
Fantastic. Come to church and we'll enrich your life. But actually Jesus went out there and said, come and follow me, take up your cross and suffer. But there's actually huge relief in this. Because Jesus isn't suffering because he's done something wrong. And suffering isn't at the heart of this because we're not loved. It's actually because the cross turns the whole thing upside down. And the church needs to get hold of this as it looks at the world because sometimes the church has been very guilty of saying we're going to be like the world. We're going to prize political strength. We're going to prize the ability to, to tell parliament to pass laws that make people behave well and do Christian things. And, and, and we'd love to do that. We'd love to pass laws and, and show strength and all the rest of it. But actually, the call of the gospel is the opposite. The God who comes in weakness and values weakness and suffering. It's one of the reasons why the church has always and must always be looking out for the poorest and the weakest and those that are struggling, because that's what our God does. But there's more than that, as we just go on a little bit further. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, here's the idea. The arm of the Lord is God's strength. God's spiritual power that's going to change the nations. Where do we look for God's strength and where do we see it? Then we have this next part of it in verses 2, which talks about a figure who grows up like a tender shoot out of dry ground. He has no beauty or majesty. There is nothing in his appearance that is impressive. And what does this remind us of? Again, it's, it's the gospel story, isn't it? Jesus was not an impressive figure. In fact, in Mark chapter 6, they come along and Jesus starts saying things and they say, who's this guy? He's got no education. He didn't go to university. He's only a carpenter. You know, he's not, he's not even a doctor or a lawyer or somebody important. He's a nothing. And he's the son of Mary. It's interesting that they say son of Mary, not son of Joseph. As if there's something dodgy about his family background. He's not even from my own. Do you what? And we know his brothers and his sisters. You get that in places? I can't his father. He can't be important. It's the same question that Pilate asks when they bring Jesus, this revolutionary. It's turning the whole place upside down. And Pilate looks at this bedraggled figure and says, Are you the king of the Jews? Really? You're nothing. You're nobody. And that word despised, verse 3, he was despised. It really means laughed at. You know that sort of place, and if you've been bullied, you know what this is about at some point. The worst thing isn't the punches, it's the derision. It's the you're nothing and you don't matter. You know, by the world's ratings, Jesus wasn't important. He won no battles. He visited no world cities. He wrote no books. He did no meetings with famous leaders or celebrities at all in his whole ministry. You know, this isn't just about Jesus, so this says something to us as well. What are the signs we look for when we look for signs that God is on the move? Do we look for things that are spectacular or successful? 
If our church was right now finding they had loads of money coming in and we were able to do another refurbishment and we had lots of new members and 400 people in the Sunday school and everybody was tuning into our website and we had 500 hits on YouTube, would we say that was evidence that God was moving? Strength. Hey, we've got a great church. We've now got a big praise band and everything else and we move and we see God is really moving here miraculous testimonies of people standing up at the front and saying, my life's been turned round. And we would say, that's evidence that God is really moving. But here's the message of the gospel. This is how the arm of the Lord is revealed in Jesus, and he looks totally unimpressive. In fact, as Jesus goes on his ministry, the numbers following him go down until at the end, there's nobody. It's a complete disaster. And yet, what do we look for? Big, strong churches. Mega churches. That's where God's obviously at, where the numbers are going up. And very often, it's also because as we get engaged in, in Christian life, we are actually looking for the cool and the hip and the right on because that gives us a sense that we are, we are important and we are in with the right crowd. And the gospel says something very different. Paul puts it this way in Second Corinthians. He's experiencing what he calls a a thorn in the flesh. Now, we don't know what it was, but there was something in his life or his body that was very painful and very annoying. You know, like a thorn that just ticking away at me. And he kept praying to God, do a miracle, take it away. And eventually God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. My power, my arm of the Lord is going to be revealed in nothing happening. And in you learning patience. Opposite way around we think. Or here's another way that we might think of it. The end of the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, there's a whole load of talk of here's all that God's done for you and here's what you're to do in response. And you might think it will say, go and evangelize the missions, make 500 churches, see the world transformed. It doesn't. It says this. The end of Hebrews. Keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now, what's this actually saying? Slog on loving each other. It's really hard, and sometimes those folk in the church are going to bug your brains in, but you just keep loving them. And is that going to transform everything miraculously and change everything and show real strength? No, they're still going to annoy you again, but you just keep loving them. It's that plodding on in the ordinary, isn't it? That's life. That's what God is calling us to do. And then this other bit about showing hospitality to strangers. Now, what is that saying? It's saying, go pour lots of cups of tea. Go and invite people for meals. Go and put soup on at lunchtime and invite people. Go spend time getting to know folk. What is church about? I've often said what church is about isn't a miraculous mission plan. It's about stuffing people. It's about saying to our community and to other folk, come and sit and chat to us. We want to show you hospitality. And is that going to change everything? Well, here's what what, what Hebrews says. Some have entertained angels unawares. Now, this references a a time when... when, when, uh, Abraham was showing hospitality to some travellers and it turned out they were angels. But I don't think the writer is saying to us, well, you know what, there may be a lot of irrelevant, useless people around, but just give them a meal anyway because you never know. One of these times you're going to strike lucky and it's going to be an angel in disguise and you're going to get a big reward. I don't think that's what it's saying at all. What it's saying is, see these ordinary encounters 
showing hospitality, making cups of tea, buying a fish supper and sitting with folk, having a chat. You do that. And somehow in my kingdom, through that ordinary activity, it will be transformed. Because these are, and the word for angels actually can just mean people that are sent. This is what I am sending you to do. Ordinary stuff, but see me in it. See the arm of the Lord revealed in the ordinary. That's what we do when we look at Jesus. You know, folks, some of us are bored by ordinary Christian living. And the call is not to do something different. It's to see God in it that you're doing just now. The slog. The things that are doing your head in. The people that are doing your head in. Look again. Don't try to find something amazing and different and fantastic that's going to be much more interesting to do. Look again. Pray again and look for God in the stuff and the ordinary. It's not just the ordinary, because this passage will go on to talk about the suffering of Jesus. He took up our pain. He bore our suffering. He was stricken, afflicted, pierced, crushed. Pain and the suffering. And it says in verse 4, we considered him punished by God. Now, what does that mean? Again, it's back to this idea that we, we, we've got this thing in our head that bad things actually happen because you deserved it. We, we know that's not true, but we keep coming back to it. What have I done wrong to deserve this? And so we look at Jesus and we think, what's he done wrong? You know, the problem with suffering is that it, it, it can cause real harm because it leaves us actually either having a loss of esteem and thinking, I'm, I'm unloved, I'm useless, I deserve this. Or it can cause us with a loss of faith because we say there is no loving God. He doesn't care about me. Or it can cause us with a victim culture where we become bitter. I don't deserve this, it's not fear. I'm getting treated like this. And we always think about is our misery. But the cross does something else if we understand it. The context here is that people have done wrong. They've turned to other gods. They've trashed everything that God is trying to do. And what they're asked to do is to look at the servant is to realize something else. We thought he was being punished by God. But actually, it's the other way around. He's done absolutely nothing wrong. But in his suffering... God is dealing with the things that we have done wrong. And this is actually the huge liberating part of the gospel. Because it comes to us and it says, it says this. The worst things about yourself, you don't need to have somebody tell you you're really good underneath. You're really fantastic. If only you can see the star within you and the gold within you. You have a God who will look at the worst things that you are doing. And then will say, I love you anyway. Jesus willingly took all of this on. And whatever else that means, he did it for you. And what he was saying is, I see you. I see you in all your brokenness. And I love you so much that I will give the world away. Everything that is strong and beautiful that I could have, I will give all of that away. And I will take on the worst. And I will do it for you. That's why it's really important in the Gospels that Jesus isn't just a victim who gets caught up in a system. 
He is someone who walks into it with his eyes open because he's saying, I am doing this for you. Peter at one point says, as the soldiers come, I'm going to take my, my, my sword out and defend you. And Jesus says, look, I could have summoned 12 angels and had all these soldiers dealt with. But I am giving my life up. I am bearing this. I am taking this pain quite deliberately. And so the message of the gospel, the message of the gospel to a world that, that tries to give us esteem by telling us how wonderful we are if only we look inside is no. We can face all the brokenness, all the things that we are in denial about. And we can know that the value that God has for us isn't because we're proud or uppity or we can, we can convince ourselves we're wonderful, but actually, actually, in sheer love, he does this that we might be forgiven. It's why, by the way, that those that are truly followers of Christian, Christianity, truly followers of Christ, can never be those holy Joes that, that think they're better than everyone else because the gospel says the exact opposite. So here is a message for today in this passage from Isaiah to gaze and look on Jesus anew, to question and turn over the whole wisdom of the world and to see God coming in the ordinary and the despised. And as we know that we are forgiven that he died in our place to live in a new way in this world around us. Amen.